me to Mark chapter 13. I guess we're going through Mark chapter 13, 24 into infinity there. Mark 13, 24, dash, somewhere. If you are uh, in the threes and fours class, you're dismissed now to your class. Thank you for worshiping with us. As we turn to Mark chapter 13, we'll begin in verse 24, and we are going to, Lord willing, make it all the way to verse 37, all the way through the end of Mark chapter 13. If it's your first time with us here at St. Rose Community Church, uh, welcome. Uh, My name is Brandon, and we are so glad you're visiting with us. It is our process as a church, it's our pattern weekly, to work through whole books of the Bible, seeking to understand what they teach, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, passage by passage. So we've been working through the Gospel of Mark now um, since the Easter of last year, 2021, and we find ourselves now in Mark chapter 13, and Jesus is giving us the largest body of teaching, or giving the disciples the largest body of teaching that we find in the Gospel of Mark. This is, uh, to put it in reference for you, this is just a couple days before he's going to be crucified. The entire Gospel of Mark has been building to this moment, which Jesus will give his life as a ransom for sinners. He will give his life as a sacrifice for those who walk in sin, which is all of us. So we've watched Jesus make a beeline for the cross. We've watched him geographically move toward the cross and warn his followers over and over again, this is what's going to happen to me. Three times in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm going to a cross. And his disciples refuse to believe it. They think, no way, you're here to set up the kingdom of God. There's no way a miracle worker like you would die on a cross. And three times Jesus has to correct them. When they get into Jerusalem, Jesus starts doing a lot of things that are going to put him on a cross. Jesus gets into Jerusalem, makes a beeline for the temple, enters the temple, flips tables, begins to describe the religious elite, the powerful people in Jerusalem, as robbers. He said, you've made my temple a den of robbers. And he begins to teach them. And there's these confrontations between the authorities in the temple. And every time Jesus proves himself to be wiser than even the wisest of the religious people in the temple. And now as they've left the temple, the disciples make a comment, passing comment, looking at the gorgeous temple, which would have been immaculate, 35 acres in circumference. I mean, this would have been an incredible building. They make a passing comment and they say, look at these beautiful stones. Then Jesus uses the opportunity to then begin to prepare them for what's coming next. He begins to prepare them for historical events that were to come, and he begins to prepare them for what will come in the end. In verses 1 through 3 of Mark 13, Jesus prophesies the destruction of the Temple Mount and Jerusalem. He says not one stone is going to be left on top of another. Now that happened within 40 years of that prophecy. That happened within a generation Then, in verses 4 through 13, Jesus begins to describe what following him was going to be like. That there was going to be persecution, hostility, that they were going to be delivered over to synagogues and beaten. He's he's giving his disciples a pep talk, a preparation talk, saying, if you're going to persevere, 
through what's coming, you need to be prepared. But then in verse 14, Jesus takes a turn from talking about these days that are going to happen in the near future, and he starts to talk about those days that are going to happen in the distant future, a future day of judgment that he describes in this way. Mark chapter 13, verse 19. Jesus says, For in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. So we find in Mark chapter 13 what we often find in the scriptures where there's a prophecy that speaks to an immediate historical event, but you realize that that immediate historical event is actually just a small picture of something that's going to happen big picture later on. So the temple in Jerusalem was going to fall because of the sin of the people and the eradication of that system. And it was going to be massive, big, cataclysmic armies, man standing in the temple where he ought not. He was going to bring destruction. But even that historical moment is pointing to a much bigger moment that we're still waiting for. And that's what makes this passage so convincing, or not convincing, confusing, not convincing, (laughs) confusing. And uh, so many people kind of disagree because of the way in which Jesus moves back and forth from the immediate context to what will happen at the end of the world. And I'm going to take my best stab at what I think this is teaching, but obviously there's some good godly men who would disagree on some of the particulars of how the last days are going to work. But My intent or my hope in this whole study of the last days in Mark 13 has been not for you to understand all the particulars of what's going to happen on the last day. My intent is what I think Jesus' intent was, which is that you live faithfully today because you know that the last day is coming, that you live faithfully next week. And I I think that's the intent of these passages. So, long introduction. Let's jump in. Verse 24. Mark 13. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. 
It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Some of y'all be in trouble right now already, right? Verse 37, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. All right, let's pray. Father, help us to know what it means to stay awake as we work through many difficulties in this text, Father, may we not miss the point. Help us, Father, to see what you intended for us to see in this text of Scripture. Help us not to, to make sub- presuppositions or, or bold claims on things that you've intended us not to see until they actually happen. So, Father, just give us grace. Help us understand. Help me to speak true things from your word by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen. Verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Striking sentences, are they not? They're meant to be striking. Jesus speaks of a day to come, those days, where something will happen so cataclysmic. It will will be something of such cosmic proportions, so big, that the heavens themselves are affected. You've got to remember, there's great mystery. I mean, there's great mystery today. I mean, pictures of... Uh, from the telescope, I've been circling around social media lately, but there's mystery today about the heavens and the sun and the moon and the stars, but in that day, just as much if not more, there's mystery about these great lights in the sky. Something's coming, Jesus says, that, that will shake the very fabric of the heavens, and the point is clear, something big's coming. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't pull this language of a darkened sun and moon and falling stars out of nowhere. The language that the Old Testament prophets used are being repeated here. The Old Testament prophets prophets used language to describe the coming judgment of kings and nations that opposed God, and they use similar language. So so understand why Jesus pulls this phrase Just like very often, we need to understand how this phrase was used in the Bibles that they read, often. So if you look with me at Isaiah chapter 13, now there's many examples, but we just kind of pick one. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Isaiah, the book is this this flowing uh, passage after passage where God speaks judgment over kingdoms that have established the kingdom of man instead of the kingdom of God kingdoms that are opposed to God, Isaiah says, they're coming down. Any kingdom that sets itself up against the one true kingdom, they're coming down. So Isaiah has these prophecies of judgment coming on the kingdom of man, and some of them are graphic. 
Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Just listen to what God will do to the kingdom of man, particularly Babylon. Isaiah 13, verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another, and their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind the gold of Ophir. There will, therefore, I will make the heavens tremble. The earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger." Now, you can read this picture of the sun going dark and the moon going dark and stars falling from the sky. You can read that with, as if it's symbolism or hyperbole. But even if you do, it's not for something good. The picture of Isaiah is a picture of coming destruction from heaven itself on kingdoms of man that set themselves up against the kingdom of God. In Genesis 1, 14 through 18, God gives light to the world through sun and moon and stars, but in judgment, he takes it away. The picture is of a God who is reversing even the natural and common means of grace, such as light itself. The very fact that you have light in this room so that you can see where you're going and look at me. It's a gift of common grace. One that, when we look to the scriptures of what hell will be like, it's a gift of common grace that will be removed. Light comes from the grace of God, the very mouth of God, but in judgment, even light itself is taken away. Now, in the ancient world, kings, rulers, pharaohs often associated themselves with stars and moons and sun. And the Egyptians believed, actually, if you went to the little exhibit at the New Orleans uh, uh, Art Museum, we went, uh, me and Gray went earlier this week, and we took Owen, and I read on the sign that, uh, and I've seen this in books before, but in big letters, the Egyptians believed Pharaoh to be an incarnation of the sun god, Ra, and that his presence in ruling over the people was a representation of the sun god. Now, here in Isaiah and in Mark, we find the stars falling from the sky. So could there be a reference to the falling of kings and kingdoms around the world? Maybe so. In judgment over the nations, the one true God will bring all these so-called suns and moons and stars crashing down in devastation. Whatever the case, Jesus intentionally hijacks the same language from Isaiah to say judgment is coming on the world. Truth number one, the last day, whatever you want to believe about it, you must believe this, the last day 
will put an end to man's kingdom. The Bible is very clear about who will prevail at the end of time. Jesus has just described tribulation that will be endured. He's prepared his disciples to be beaten and rejected for their faith under the kingdom of man. He's prepared them for an abomination of a man who will stand in the place of God and Abomination of man who will set himself where he should not be and bring destruction. And after all of that evil that kingdoms of man have done for thousands of years, Jesus says a day of reckoning will come. Now, one of the things that skeptics will often say is something like this. How could your God allow so much evil in the world? How could he just look the other way while mankind commits such atrocities? And there's several answers to that question, but at least one of the answers is this. One day, God will absolutely right all wrongs. One day, judgment will come, and it will be so great, so cataclysmic, it's as if creation itself is being undone, and all evil people who did not trust Jesus to pay for their sins, they will pay for their own sins forever. All people who built their own kingdoms in their own ways will see those kingdoms fall. Weighty message this morning. I get it. And if you're a visitor here, I wanted to say that, that we're working through passages of Scripture this morning to put that before you so you recognize that we're not a church that just comes in here and preaches hellfire and brimstone and judgment every week. But we are a church that preaches what Jesus preached. And Jesus has warned humanity that one day time will run out on their opportunity to receive salvation. He borrows from Isaiah 13, but that's not the only prophet he borrows from. He borrows from Daniel chapter 7 when he says this in verse 26 of Mark 13. Mark 13, 26, Jesus says, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, a book about evil kingdoms of man ruling the world coming to their end daniel sees a vision of a day and this is what he sees daniel 7 13 i saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him this this one like a son of man to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus teaches very similarly. Matthew 25 verse 31. Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on a glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left, and the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom 
the true kingdom, right? Not man's kingdom, but God's kingdom. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But then in verse 41, he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. The last day will be a day where lines are drawn between those who are in the kingdom of God and those who will fall with the kingdom of man. It's a day of judgment. So the last day is a very conflicting day because for the non-Christian in this room, it should create some level of fear in you because if it's true, you're not ready for it to happen right now. You don't want it to happen right now. But in the same time, if you're a Christian in the mo- this morning, if it's true, I wouldn't mind if it happened right now. <laughs> to the non-Christian, it's a frightening thing. To the, to the non-Christian, when the sky splits open, you will want to hide yourself under rocks and run to caves. To the Christian, when the sky splits open, you will run out these doors like a calf leaping from the stall because the, the, the sorrow is over and the new world has come. So truth number two, the last day will be a day of restoration of God's kingdom. So look at the picture of Mark chapter 13, verse 27. This is, this is what we've been promised, Christian, if we believe in Jesus, the true king. This is what the king has planned for us. Verse 27, he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So here's the picture. After Christians have endured tribulation in this life, the picture is portrayed here that the people of God are scattered throughout the world. They're beaten up and bloodied. They've been presented by the synagogues, their own family has rejected them for their faith in Jesus. They have run. They're tired of running. They're tired of hiding. They're tired of persecution. They're tired of a hostile world. And there's pockets of these people enduring tribulation in Asia and Europe and Africa and South America and North America and to the most distant remote tribes to the ends of the earth that you've never even heard of. And there's coming a day, someday, Where the skies split open, Jesus the king descends, and he sends his angels and says, go get my people. Go forth to the ends of the earth, gather all these believers who were scattered, and bring them together in one place. The chosen of God are gathered around their savior and their king from all over the world. That is a beautiful picture. It's a picture that Paul elaborates on in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. He says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with a voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. I don't care if you're pre-trib, post-trib, all-mill, pre-mill, all the mills, whatever tribs you are, that should excite you, right? That believers in Jesus will be called to the Lord to be where he is forever from all over the world. The Bible promises that in this moment, we will see Jesus for who he is, face-to-face, no longer in a mirror dimly. Our physical bodies will be transformed before him. Some of you guys want that more now than you did 10 years ago. Amen? 
That promise didn't matter to you much at 20, but now it's looking pretty good. (laughs) Our spiritual conditions will be perfected. We will no longer have temptations. Our fears and sorrows and pain and shame will be wiped away and replaced with a glorious joy and appreciation for just how deep the forgiveness is. How deep the salvation goes. We'll be rewarded for faithfulnesses in this life. We will join in worship with a great multitude from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. There will be no racism. There will be no partiality. There will be people from Timor-Leste and St. Rose, Louisiana. Right now we got one Timor-Leste, and then we'll have millions, right? And we'll be together, understanding one another, saying the same praises of the Lord. And the world will be rid of everything that was cursed. The last day will be a day of reconciliation, a global fulfillment for what we see throughout the scriptures. It'll be a global fulfillment for all of God's people. What God once promised to Israel, in part, will be ours in full. You see this language, and there's a lot of people uh, you know, you kind of debate what Israel will get and, and, and what they want and all those types of things. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1. This was God's words to Israel if they would repent and believe. What they would receive sort of in a partial, particular land type setting. But look at this, Deuteronomy 3, 1. He says, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, And you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart, with all your soul. So so this is God telling Israel, when you repent, right? Verse 3, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he'll gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord God scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he'll take you. The Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. He'll make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart, the heart of your offspring, so you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Now, it seems to me that much of what God promised to Israel, if they would obey, is now promised to believers in Jesus for all of eternity. That an eternal land full of eternal blessing where the curse is no longer plaguing the world. I mean, Revelation chapter 22, verse 3 says this. No longer will there be anything accursed. This is the last chapter of the Bible. This is the end of the story. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Be encouraged, Christian. The day is coming. Beware, non-Christian, the day is coming. Jesus goes on in verse 28. And it seems, and and again, um, this is where the difficulty comes in place. It seems that Jesus now moves back to confirm that his more immediate prophecy about the destruction of the temple will take place in the disciples' lifetime. Okay? Okay? Seems like he transitions. We've talked about those days. Now he's coming back to talk about these days again. And I think he does that to show the trustworthiness of his words. If my near-term prophecy is going to come true, my long-term prophecy is going to come true as well. So, so hopefully you, you, you see that. In verse 28, he says, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. 
As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Now this is the verse that gives people trouble. Verse 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things, these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass, not pass, will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So here's the point, and then let's get in the weeds a little bit. Here's the point, truth number three, this is the point. The last day is certain, okay? So Jesus assures his disciples that these things, I think he's speaking about, the temple, were going to take place in their lifetime, they needed to be ready. They needed to be watchful. This was going to come, and it did come in their lifetime, in their generation. So which I think we should infer, the point is, if Jesus' words came to pass regarding that, then they're definitely going to come to pass regarding that which is coming, right? So the Son of Man is going to come into the clouds with great power and glory, and the believers are going to be gathered from all over the world. The future event is just as sure as the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. That's already happened. So if he said that was going to happen and it happened, and he says this is going to happen, it's going to happen. Does everybody got it? Does that make sense? Now that is not the only way to interpret this text, because what everybody gets caught up on, and I understand why, is verse 30, where it says, truly, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, obviously, Peter and James and John passed away before the sky split open and the Son of Man descended and all the the elect were gathered from the end of the world. That hasn't happened yet, right? If it did, we missed it, right? And that's what the Thessalonians were struggling with. They thought they missed it. Paul writes the whole book of Thessalonians saying, you didn't miss it. It's coming, right? So that's where people get caught up. But the point is, the day of the Lord is certain. It's definitely going to happen. If, the, if, if heaven and earth itself will pass away, the thing that would remain will be the words that God said. There is nothing that God says that will not come to pass. When he speaks things, he actually speaks things into existence. When he says, let there be light, light says, okay and comes into existence. When he says, the clouds are going to split open one day, it means it's going to happen, and Christ will return. It's certain, but that does not mean that it can be predicted. Verse 22, Mark 13, 32. But concerning that day or that hour... No one knows. Let's just, let's, you know, I, this is kind of cheesy. I never do this in a sermon. Can we just all say that together? No one knows. Praise the Lord. <laughs> now that you've affirmed that. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Truth number four, the last day cannot be predicted. The scriptures are abundantly clear that the doctrine of the end of the world is not in your Bibles so that you will know exactly what's going to happen and when it's going to happen. I don't know how much clearer Jesus could have made this. He says that the angels in heavens don't know and that Jesus even says that the incarnate Son of God dwelling, dwelling in human flesh in whom there is no sin doesn't know at this point, right? So if Jesus doesn't know the exact day of the last day, he explicitly tells us that he doesn't know the last day while he is here on earth. 
How foolish is it to say that we do know when the last day is going to happen? And so let me just go ahead and just say this. If, if there is a particular religious sect of people, like the Jehovah's Witnesses have done over and over and over again, that says they know when the end of the world is going to happen, and then that date comes, and then they kind of like change their story, and then they set a new date, don't listen to them. It is a sign that they are heretics, that they are not speaking the words of God because they're very obviously ignoring the plain teaching of God in this verse. It does get, not get any clearer that no one will know the date unless they're claiming that they can do something that Jesus himself said that he did not know in the flesh. So, if Jesus is not giving us these details to help us know when it will happen, now we get, and this is where we've been trying, where we've wanted to land for the last three or four weeks, why is Jesus giving us these details at all? Why is it helpful for us in the room to meditate regularly on the last day? Verse 33. Be on guard. Keep awake. You don't know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts servants in charge, each with his work. And he commands the doorkeeper, stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you don't know when the master of the house will come in the evening or midnight when the rooster crows in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you all, stay awake. So truth number four was the last day cannot be predicted. But truth number five is this, the last day can be prepared for. The last day can be prepared for. Now, I don't know about you. Uh, me and Mark were talking about this the other day. Um, I've got a little bit of prepper in me, right? And if you've lived through 2020 to now, probably every one of you has got a little bit of prepper in you because you've seen, right? If 2020's taught us anything at all, it's taught us that anything can happen at any time ever. We are not as secure or as safe or as certain as we would like to believe, right? We feel that, right? We kind of lived in a dream world there where no wars came to us and there was no sort of major thing. The pandemic kind of shook that up. Actually, anything could change my life entirely in just a moment, right? What starts out as a little news story can blow up into my entire life for three years without me even realizing it was coming. So I think that sort of increased, even in us, the desire to prep for those types of things, right? And if my goal in life was to ensure my own survival, I personally, Brandon Langley, if I had enough money, man, I would have a shipping container buried in my backyard with enough ammo and food for all of you. I would, straight up. You guys could come chill at my house, right? But is that what it means to stay awake? Is that the way the Lord would have us prepare for the last day? Is that what it means to stay awake in light of the end of the world? Is staying awake and being on guard about doing everything we can to preserve our physical lives as long as I can on this side of eternity? Or am I to stay awake in a different kind of way for a different kind of end? Notice that when tribulation came in the disciples, they, they endured the tribulation. How does God intend me to spend my life staying awake in light of impending end to all 
things, and this is where I want to land the plane. We see that the urge of Jesus is for us to stay awake, to be on guard, to live our lives as if the end could come at any moment. And if I'm searching this passage particular, okay, God, how, how do you want us to actually prepare? It actually leads me back to verse 31. It leads me back to verse 31 where Jesus makes this statement, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So how do I prepare for the end when all things pass away? Well, I think that the way in which I stay awake is that I cling to the only thing that will not pass away when the end comes. And that is what God has said for me to do in my life. So let me end with a few takeaways this morning. Here they are. Number one is this. We prepare for the last day by knowing and obeying the word. Now, if we as Christians, if we're going to endure any type of tribulation of any kind in the days ahead, I mean, if Bibles are burnt in the street and Christians are no longer allowed to gather, more than stockpiling ammunition and MREs, I pray that we will have stockpiled the bread of life, the word of God implanted into our hearts that will nourish my soul in the face of difficulty. I will need deep soul-level knowledge of the sovereignty of God and the promise of a coming kingdom in that day. How do I stay awake for the end of the world? I need to feast on the only thing that will remain standing when everything else fades away. I need to know deeply that I will be able to recognize the false teachers of the day and the false desires of my own heart that I might continue to live faithfully to my God. It's, it's not just about knowledge of what is true. I'm not saying, how do you prepare for the day? You just fill your mind with a lot more knowledge of God. It's about living in light of that knowledge. Living as if his word and the things he said are the things that matter in the world. God's told us what will matter on the last day. It will be the way we cared for the least of these. The orphans, the widows, the needies among us. It will be the way in which we glorified God, the people we shared the word with. It's crazy to me that in the conversation about the last day in Matthew 25, the thing that Jesus notes about the righteous are the ways they live their lives caring for the least of these. I mean, you look at Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says, the king will say to those on my right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Verse 35, this is end of the world talk. And what is Jesus talking about that matters? I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when, when did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did one to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. How do we prepare? We, we learn what God has called us to and we walk in it. We know his word, and we obey it. And then we lead our loved ones to do the same, right? Takeaway number two, we prepare for the last day by teaching the word to our families. If God's word is what will last, then the thing that we want for our loved ones most is that they know the word and know how to be faithful to it when the going gets tough. 
It's a scary thing, and I've said this before, it's a scary thing that so many Christian parents will give their lives and make such great sacrifices so that their children can have what they never had, quote, unquote. But then exert very little effort, and they lack intentionality with making sure their children know and love and obey the one thing that will last. Christian parents in the room, stay awake in your parenting. Don't fall asleep on the fact that there's an eternity on the other side of your four-year-old's life. There's an eternity on the other side of your 15-year-old's life. And you could give your life to make sure that that child wins an Olympic gold medal one day. But when the tribulation comes and the sky splits open, the gold medal will mean very little. But what they knew of the Word of God will mean much. Prepare your children with the word. We're to prepare every generation like Jesus could return in this generation. This week at VBS, we will pre- pre- prepare this generation like Jesus could return this Friday. We'll give them what will last. But it's not generations. It's not just generations. It's also nations. And here's our last, last way that we prepare for the last days. We prepare for the last day by taking the word to the nations. If you remember what Jesus said would be taking place when the tribulations come and when the end comes, verse, chapter 13, verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Now, some have said that this verse means that somehow we're going to reach every ethnic group with the gospel and that when we do, we will trigger the return of Christ. Um, I'm not convinced that that's how I'm supposed to read that text, but I am convinced that Jesus' teaching is clear. This is what his disciples are doing until the end comes. We're taking the good news of salvation to those who have never heard. We're taking the good news of salvation to nations and peoples and ethnicities to the ends of the earth who have never heard the name of Jesus, to people who are not ready for the sky to split open and for Jesus to return, and we want them to be ready just as we are ready. So if I'm going to give my life to something that's going to matter on the last day, it will be people hearing the word of God so that they're ready for the last day, so that when the angels go to all the ends of the earth to gather the people who believe in Jesus, then I will see some of my my brothers and sisters in Indonesia or Timor-Leste or Sudan or Africa or, or uh, you know, to, to Peru, and I will see brothers and sisters being gathered who heard the gospel because I didn't sleep, because I didn't stay asleep with my Christian life, fiddling around with things that would be burnt up on the last day. If I want my life to matter, if you want your life to matter, then join with what the local church is doing in getting the gospel to neighborhoods and nations where people have never heard that there's a way to be prepared for the end. And the way is through trusting the king who gave his life for rebels like you and me. I'm going to end with a quote from... uh, British missionary to China in the late 19th century. He wrote these words that are somewhat famous. He says this, only one life will soon pass, and only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life Twill soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aims to leave unto God's holy will to cleave. 
Only one life will soon pass. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a few brief years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its clays I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now, let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. There's one more stanza. We should read it. <laughs> Only life will soon be passed. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these teachings in Mark 13. Pray that the intent of this chapter would accomplish in our hearts what you have sought for it to accomplish, God. Help us to respond. Help us to, to look to eternity more than we look to the temporal. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.